And that's a passage that describes the Messiah as the servant of the Lord. In this series, we're looking at four different passages in Isaiah that describe Jesus as the Messiah. And so I, I know you just sat down, but I'd like for you to, if you would, please stand again as I read God's Word. <clears throat> I'll be reading from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. <clears throat> God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, to those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. This is God's word. Please be seated. <clears throat> the night before Jesus was crucified, he had one last supper with his innermost disciples. And we're told in John 13 that Jesus got up from the table, he took off his outer cloak, he took a towel, wrapped it around his, his waist, he took water, poured it in a basin, and he began washing his disciples' feet. One of his disciples was named Peter, and Peter's like that guy, we all know somebody like this, he's like the guy in high school who would raise his hand and ask the question everybody else was too embarrassed to ask, and so Jesus, Peter says, Jesus, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to Peter, he said, you don't understand it now, but you will understand it later. And then Peter actually said to Jesus, never will you wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so Jesus told me, if you don't experience me as a servant, uh, you don't experience me at all. And we aren't really told what Peter was thinking, but it was likely on, along the lines of, Jesus, it's really beneath your dignity to wash my feet. We pay servants to wash our feet. You're brilliant, you're powerful, you're the most amazing person I've ever met, but you're really a little bit clueless about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Never shall you wash my feet. But Jesus says, if you don't experience me as a servant, you're not going to experience me at all. 
And so Peter really wasn't speaking out of humility. He was speaking out of arrogance. He didn't have a right to critique Jesus' understanding of who he was and what he would do in Peter's life. He could not say to, to Jesus, you can be my king, you can be my Messiah, but you cannot be my servant. The passage we're going to look at today confronts us with the same issue that Peter faced. Will we allow Jesus to fulfill his mission as the servant of the Lord in our lives or not? Like Peter, we don't have the right to, to give Jesus a job description and say, you can be my savior, but you cannot be my servant. I'm not going to let you do things for me. I'm going to do things for you. Inappropriate for you to be the servant. And so if we don't experience Jesus as the servant of the Lord, we won't experience him at all. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at two passages which describe Jesus as the servant of the Lord. We're in a block called, in Isaiah, it's called the, the book of the servant, Isaiah 40 through 55. Today we'll look at chapter 42. Next week, Brian will preach from chapter 53, the suffering servant. But in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, we see three things. We see the calling of the servant in verse 1, the character of the servant in verses 2 through 4, and then the mission of the servant in verses 5 through 9. The calling, the character, and then the mission of the servant. First of all, the calling of the servant. It's interesting, throughout the book of Isaiah, Israel is called the Lord's servant. But beginning here... Uh, there's one specific individual, the Messiah is called the servant of the Lord. It's, it's singular, it's one individual. And this is what we read, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so the Lord invites us, says, look on the servant, behold him. Consider him what he's like. And the Lord says he's going to do three things in relation to this servant. Did you notice? He said, I will uphold him, I will delight in him, and I will put my spirit upon him. Consequently, with God's uh, support, God's delight, and God's spirit, the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. And we talked about justice a bit last week. And when we think about justice, we tend to think almost strictly exclusively on human terms. We think about fairness between people. If I treat you with justice, I'm treating you fairly. I'm not mistreating you. And that is absolutely part of justice when, we, when, you, when you explore it biblically. Uh, look at Isaiah 58, for example. God said, you're, you're fasting, you're bringing me these sacrifices, you're singing the songs, but it's worthless because of the way you treat the poor and the hungry and the homeless. It's worthless because those very people are created in my image. And so justice involves how we treat each other, how we treat other human beings fairly. But biblically, the concept of justice also includes treating God fairly. Justice means that we treat him rightly. And the previous chapter, in, in uh, chapter 41, uh, really establishes this perspective. In Isaiah 41.1, Isaiah depicts a courtroom scene in which God calls people near and far to come together for judgment. It's the same word as justice here in 42.1, but come together for judgment or justice. 
And God's argument in the courtroom is basically, I have sovereignly controlled what's happened in the past. I have declared to you what's going to happen in the future. But the gods, the idols of the nations, they can't speak. They can't act. And so uh, idolatry is unjust because it robs God of his glory. And so bringing justice to the nations would involve righting the wrong, the injustice of idolatry. And so this declaration here in chapter 42.1 is that the servant of the Lord will bring justice. It's not in doubt. It will happen. With God's support and God's delight and God's spirit, the servant of the Lord will be successful. Listen as I read Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. This is a passage that just establishes New Testament right off the bat. Jesus is this servant. And so in, in Matthew 3, 16, we read, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up, were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. This is God pouring out his Spirit on his servant. Verse 17, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is God expressing his delight in his servant. And so with these two elements, God's spirit and God's delight, he's establishing, this is my servant. This is the one who's going to bring justice to the nations. Okay, back in chapter 42. The calling of the servant, look at the character of the servant in verses 2 through 4. And uh, God wanted us to know ahead of time, this is what the servant's going to be like. This is his character. This is how he's going to treat people. He wanted people to recognize him when he showed up, okay? You think about the Messiah. God is going to send one person. He's going to send one person to be the Messiah. You need to know what to look for because a lot of people claim to be the Messiah. A lot of people claim, I'm the one who can deliver you. I'm going to take you where nobody else can take you. And so this is what God says. What we see in verse 2 is that this servant would be very understated, okay? This is not what you would expect. This is what we read. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor will he make his voice heard in the street. And so obviously that's not an absolute statement. It's saying he's not going to be brash. He's not going to be arrogant. He's not just going to try to gather the biggest crowd that he can. No, he's going, to be very, he's going to be very quiet, actually, especially for a Messiah. Verse 3 describes how the servant would, would treat frail, weak people like you and like me. This is good news. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so when the, the servant would encounter, encounter something, someone who was bruised and wounded, he would treat them gently and kindly. When the servant would come across someone whose flame was barely burning, he would be very careful not to snuff out that flame. In other words, the servant would take into account the frailties, the weaknesses of the people. And we see this in Matthew 11, right? When Jesus invited people, he said, come to me if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you're heavy laden, come to me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. 
as well, he said he will faithfully bring forth justice. He's not going to give up on the assignment God has for him. We come to verse 4. Isaiah makes a word play. It's not really preserved in our English translations, but I'll try to bring it out. Verse 4, he says, he will not be disheartened or crushed, just as the servant would not dishearten other people, he himself will not be disheartened. And just as the servant wouldn't crush other people, like a bruised reed, he himself would not be crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So the point is that the servant of the Lord would be resilient enough. He's, he's going to have all sorts of opposition, all sorts of persecution, but he will be resilient enough to actually bring justice to the nations. And he mentions the coastlands there. And that, the coastlands were the most remote place, like the islands, the faraway places. Even justice will be established there. And you notice he says that, and, and this is Hebrew parallelism, he's like restating he establishes justice, and that involves the coastlands waiting expectantly, receiving his law, receiving his instructions. And if this sounds suspiciously like uh, going and making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, and then teaching them, instructing them in the law of the Lord, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, if it sounds like that, because that's the way the servant would envision taking justice to the coastlands, to the remotest parts of the earth. You start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then you go to the remotest parts of the earth. Through the gospel, Jesus is building a kingdom established on justice and righteousness. We saw that last week in John 9, 7. So you've got the calling of the Lord, the character of the Lord, and then the mission of the Lord in Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 9. Notice how Isaiah describes the Lord in verse 5. And this is kind of a summary of Genesis 1 and 2. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Throughout the book of Isaiah, if you read it straight through, you'll see this running contrast between Yahweh, who is the creator, and the idols that are created. And the creator addresses the servant. So far, he's been speaking about the servant. Now he turns and he addresses and speaks to the servant. And this is what he says in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also uphold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And so with God's full endorsement, uh, as well as God's protection, the servant would be a covenant to the people. And in the Bible, a covenant defines a relationship between two parties. And so through the servant, people, not just Jew, uh, Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike, that they, would, they could establish a relationship with Yahweh, with God himself. He would be a covenant to the farthest reaches of the world. And, of course, that's what, what uh, Jesus would, would uh, be. Whereas Israel was called to be a light to the world, Israel ended up becoming like the world. But Jesus would succeed. He would be a light to the nations. In verse 7, the Lord is very specific about what this servant would do. Again, he's saying, I'm telling you this ahead of time. 
so that when it happens, you'll recognize it. He says, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, to those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And so the eyes of people who are spiritually blind, he would open them. That's what we just sang about, right? And when people's eyes are open, they see God as he is, and they see themselves as they are. Read Isaiah 6 sometime. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he was like, whoa, I'm undone. He was like a, a stick of butter on a hot sidewalk. He's like, I, I am sinful. How can I dwell in the presence of a holy God? And so when your eyes are open, you see God, you see yourself. People who are held in bondage, prisoners, bondage to sin and to Satan, they would be set free. People living in darkness, they would see a great light. Verses 8 and 9 pick up the courtroom scene from chapter 41. So the verdict has been rendered, and God will prove that he's superior to the nations. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my praise to graven images. And so through the servant, the glory of the Lord would fill the earth. The praise that had been given to counterfeit gods would now rightly be given to God alone. In chapter 1, God had challenged the gods of the nations, said, explain the past. Go ahead and explain what's happened, and then declare the future, and then you'll make your case. But they couldn't do it. But God, look at verse 9. He says, behold, the former things have come to pass, and now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you, so that when they happen, you'll know that I'm God. Turn with me to Matthew 12. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. We're going to see in Matthew 12 the fulfillment of this this exact passage. We're going to see the new things that the Lord declared in Isaiah 42. We're going to see how they sprang forth through the ministry of Jesus. And I love love the way Matthew, so Isaiah is quoted more often than any other book in the Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament more. And I love the way... Excuse me. I love the way Matthew does it because Matthew doesn't just quote it randomly. He says, this is to fulfill what Isaiah said, and then he quotes it. There's no, no guesswork, no guesswork, no speculation needed. So we're in Matthew 12, verse 15, and the verse 14 basically says the Pharisees, because of what Jesus had been doing, they, they purposed to destroy Jesus. And so, but Jesus, aware of this, Aware that the Pharisees wanted to destroy him, he withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to tell who he was. And Matthew tells us this, withdrawing from a public fight with the Pharisees and healing uh, all who came to him, you know, bruised reeds, dimly burning wicks, uh, he fulfilled Isaiah's word. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Verse 18, this should sound familiar. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Again, he's not brash. No, he's not trying to make a big splash. Verse 20, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until 
he leads justice to victory. And so Jesus was not the proverbial bull in a china shop. He didn't come plowing through and say, I don't care if you're weak, if you're wounded, I'm going to plow through, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. No, he paid attention to the condition of the people he encountered because he's the servant of the Lord. And he did that so that God's full righteousness, God's justice would triumph. Verse 21, and in his name the Gentiles hope. Now, What's fascinating is that Matthew gives a very specific example of how Jesus deals with frail, weak, wounded people. You remember what it said the servant would do? Very specifically, he said he will open blind eyes, right? People that are in darkness, people that are imprisoned, he will deliver them, right? These are things you cannot do for yourself. This is what the the servant of the Lord would do. Guess what Jesus does in verse 22? Read it. Then a demon-possessed man, this is a man in bondage to Satan. He had an evil spirit that that, uh, possessed him. A demon-possessed man who was blind. He could not see. He was mute. He could not talk. He was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke, and he saw. And we don't have time, but if you keep reading it, the Pharisees, they, they were just could not entertain the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah. They said, he's doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus basically shut him down. He said, bad theology, bad logic. I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had been poured. He said, that's why I was able to deliver this man from the demon and open his eyes. And so this man was a bruised reed. He was a dimly burning wick. Jesus opened his blind eyes, delivered him from the bondage of Satan. That's what the Spirit of the Lord, that's what God said he would do by his Spirit. That's what God did, and that's what the servant of the Lord does. Present tense. And so this is the staggering truth about Christmas. The child who was born, the son who was given, he is the servant of the Lord who delivers us us from our spiritual blindness and our bondage. Therefore, that means that we face the same issue that Peter faced in John 13. So if we loop back, Peter said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. We face the same issue because we sometimes, we don't, we don't, we're not as brash as, as Peter. We're not as articulate. We don't know ourselves as well, as well as Peter. But sometimes, in effect, we say to Jesus, yeah, you're not going to open my eyes. You're not going to deliver me from my bondage. And uh, like Peter, we, we sometimes refuse the ministry of the servant of the Lord. And when we do, it's not out of humility. It's not, oh, I just, I just, just, I'm too humble for you to do that. No, if Jesus laid aside his heavenly glory, he became one of us so that he might be the servant of the Lord, God's spirit, God's blessing, God's hand was upon him. If we refuse that, it's not humility. It's arrogance or unbelief or some other misguided attitude of the heart if we don't receive what the servant wants to do in our lives. And I think my observation is people refuse the ministry of Jesus as a servant of the Lord for different reasons. I think sometimes 
uh, and this is, this is the case for all of us at times, sometimes we don't recognize that we're spiritually blind. We, we just don't recognize it. And so we would say, yeah, I've got my problems, but I'm not like the guy in Matthew 12, right? I mean, I, I, could, I could read my Bible a little more. I could get a little more knowledge. But I don't need my eyes open by Jesus. I don't need him to do something. I need to do more. And we say, yeah, I've, I've got some bad habits, but I'm not in bondage. I don't have some demonic bondage in thought and word and deed. And so, well, as you probably know, the problem with spiritually blind people is what? We have blind spots, which by definition we can't see. We, we don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, the more I study Scripture, the more, the more I study Scripture, the more I see how clueless I am in all sorts of ways in my thinking, in my speaking, in my acting, in my marriage, in my, my role as a pastor. And it just, just drives me to the point of, of desperation. I need the servant of the Lord to open my eyes and to deliver me from my blindness and bondage. And if you don't recognize any blindness, any bondage in your life, Ask somebody, ask your roommate, ask your spouse, ask God. Search me, oh God, know my heart. Show me, just point out if there's anything in me that's hurtful, anything that displeases you. So we need to have our, our, our blind spots exposed. And so again, the servant of the Lord has to serve us. We can't do this for ourselves. He does it as we seek him. And that's why we, we have this, these meditation and reading guide that we're, we're offering for you. It's, you find in the e-blast, sign up for it on the connection card if you're not signed up there. But, but it's meant to press you into the, into the word so that your eyes might be opened. So sometimes we don't know we're blind and, and in bondage. And sometimes we, we see our need very clearly, but we refuse the ministry of Jesus as the servant of the Lord because we don't really think he's interested enough. Or we don't really think he's powerful enough to deliver me. We tend to think, oh, yeah, I can see it happening in your life, of course. I can, I can absolutely believe that God would do that for you. But you don't know my past. You don't know my issues. You don't know what I wrestle with. Well, uh, if, if that's, that's what, what you think, um, you might be a wounded, bruised reed. You might be a dimly burning wick. Please know that Jesus, Jesus knows. The testimony of Scripture, the experience of many, many people here would say, it may feel like this insurmountable risk, but Jesus can be trusted. Jesus weeps with those who weep. Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. You come to him by faith. You might need people to come with you. Come to Jesus and you will find him to be the servant of the Lord. And he will minister your heart in deep, deep ways that nobody else can. Allow God to show you your spiritual blindness, your spiritual bondage. Allow God to convince you that Jesus, by the Spirit of God, is able and willing to open eyes, deliver from bondage, out of helplessness, out of desperation. Cry out to God in faith and seek him with all your heart. Wait expectantly for the servant of the Lord to act on your behalf for God's glory. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table here in a couple of minutes.
And uh, one of the things that the Lord's, Lord's Supper does for us is it brings us back and it reminds us. And the Lord's Supper puts in context everything we've been talking about today. Because what the bread and the cup remind us is that the child who was born, Jesus, the servant of the Lord, he was crucified for us. He was crucified so that our eyes might be opened, so that we might be delivered from bondage. And so as we go into this time, I'm going to give you a couple of, uh, I'm going to give you about a minute of, of time just to, to quiet your mind and think and invite God to impress on you anything that you desire. And afterwards, we'll eat and drink together. Heavenly Father, during this, this time of silence, we invite you to whisper to us, what are the issues in our lives? Where's our blindness? Where's our bondage? And God, as we remember the body and blood of Christ, uh, convince us that if you have done the greatest thing for us, that surely you will do these things as well. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We read in Isaiah 42 that Jesus would be given as a covenant to the people, to the nations. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of remembering the body and blood of Christ. God, we thank you that Jesus is your very servant and he is bringing justice, righteousness to the nations. Thank you that he didn't give up on, on this mission and thank you that you involve us in this mission. May we experience the spiritual sight and the freedom that Jesus came to give us. This week, may we receive everything you want us to experience. We uh, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your kindness and gentleness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.